This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, nerds. Welcome to another episode of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. Just Adam today, and I'm really excited because I got to interview an author who I have adored from afar for years and years. I got to interview Madeline Rue, and she has a new book coming out that is called Reclaimed. Actually, it might be out by the time you hear this. Um, it is kind of a duology book to one of her previous books called Salvaged. Um, they're in the same universe. It's not a direct sequel. So, I mean, honestly, you can read um, them in, in either order, um, but if you read Salvaged first, uh, reclaimed will have some um, small things here and there that are, you know, connective tissue to salvaged. Uh, it's a science fiction book. We get all into it. You know, she describes it. So I'm not going to spend too much time doing that right now. Um, you also may know her from her very, very creepy uh, middle grade young adult horror series, Asylum. Uh, she also has written a World of Warcraft book. She's working on a Dungeons and Dragons book right now. She has uh, written stories in some of the Star Wars uh, collections. She does so, so much, and I have loved all of her books, like I said, for a really, really long time, and I was very, very excited to take the chat with her. Uh, we get into a whole bunch of stuff, really. We talk about writing horror, despite the fact that she's a self-proclaimed scaredy cat. Um, we talk about writing her own books versus writing in a existing IP, which like she has done, for again, for Dungeons and & Dragons, and um, and for World of Warcraft and kind of the, the challenges, but also the kind of freeing nature of writing and creating her own worlds. Um, we talk a lot about trauma and how that um, affects what she's writing. And then we had some fun at the end of the conversation where we talked about the difference between horror novels, horror movies, and horror video games, and what is the scariest of the three. So Again, just a, an author who I have really, really loved all of her work and um, admired from afar for several years. So it was wonderful to get to sit down and chat with her for a while. Um, yeah, I, that's that's the, the intro I'm going to give you about Madeline before I let her get into the, the book. Um, if you want to get a hold of us, you can always reach us uh, at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. Uh, you there you can send us book recommendations if you want like some of you have done lately or you can ask for book, recommend, book recommendations or um, a book that maybe you don't remember us talking about that you were, were looking for whatever it is if you just want to say hi that's great too uh, you can do all those things uh, a couple other you know you can find us on twitter and instagram and tiktok at pro book nerds love hearing from you all on the social medias um, if you haven't done so yet, again, just would love it if you leave us a five-star review and a, a quick rating wherever you listen to podcasts. just takes a minute. helps people find us a little bit more easily. Um, and then from a fun aspect, if you are a library lover and you love the Libby app, check out shop.overdrive.com. There's some really cool new swag, um, hoodies and long sleeve t-shirts and tote bags and all sorts of stuff. And there is a two professional book nerds t-shirts on there as well. So 
And if you get any of that stuff, be sure, be sure to tag us on Instagram and Twitter and all those places. We love seeing it. Okay. I think that's just about everything. I'm not going to take up any more of your time. I hope you guys enjoy this conversation with the fabulous Madeline Rue on the Professional Book Nerds podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We have a mutual friend, uh, Mallory O'Meara. Yay! Yeah, I'm gonna do uh, uh, reading glasses for this too. Yeah, she actually told me that because um, she and I we met because like when they first launched their podcast, they reached out to Overdrive and were like, "Hey, we love your app, Libby. Can like, how do you guys do sponsors?" And like we met, and we were, I was like, "By the way, I also host our podcast." And she's like, "No, no shit, I'm an author." And so we became friends. And actually, I remember like I heard you on their podcast like several years ago. And somehow I just came up when she and I were like FaceTiming about something last week. I was like, by the way, Madeline's coming on my podcast. She's like, get the hell out of here, man, too. So yeah, yeah, she's great. She's a good friend of mine and a a delightful person in every way. So she's very good peoples. Um, But we always love kind of kicking off our episodes by having the author introduce their latest book. So I don't give away too much of the plot. So would you mind introducing our listeners to Reclaimed and then we'll jump off from there? Absolutely. All right. Well, I'll tell you what, I will let you take it away. You can, you can give as much or as little as the plot as you want and I will shut up. Okay. Right now. Yeah, go ahead. You're good. Okay. Um, all right. So I'm so bad at elevator pitches, right? But um, <laughs> I like to describe this as sort of Westworld meets Memento. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of uh, time fun in this. Not too much. That was a challenge, right? But um, mm-hmm. it's basically about this uh, young woman, Senna, who has recently escaped a very dangerous, very scary cult. And she's having a really hard time readjusting to society. And she basically gets this mysterious email message, phone call, whatever you want to call it, um, asking her to participate in groundbreaking research that will not just help her heal from trauma, but literally erase it from her life. So it's like it never happened. And she, along with two other people who have also experienced recent traumas, have received this message and they all have very different lifestyles. One is like an androgynous supermodel of the universe, (laughs) like literally, because this is science fiction. Um, And she's, you know, fabulously wealthy, incredibly famous. And uh, and then the third participant is a, a young man who is sort of a a gamer obsessed little boy who has also experienced uh, a recent tragedy. So these three unlikely (laughs) characters are all brought to one uh, facility and they are subjected to this brand new groundbreaking treatment. And it's, you know, a horror thriller. So as you can imagine, it doesn't go exactly as they planned. Um, But yeah, it's all about sort of the, the power of trauma and what it means to experience it and what it means to try to heal from it and sort of the lengths that you know you'll go to to try to fix your life after something cataclysmic happens 
Yeah. And so for people who read Salvage, this mm-hmm. is in the same universe. It is. Yeah. They take place. This actually happens right after the events of Salvage. So you'll hear little like updates kind of through the news. They're yeah. they're not connected in a really um, I don't want people to expect a direct sequel because it's right. not. It's the same universe. So same technology. Um, you'll recognize settings. Mm-hmm. And there are a few little Easter eggs. If you read Salvage and you paid attention, there are definitely some Easter eggs in this one um, about certain characters and tie-ins and crossovers. Yeah, I was very excited about that as I was reading Reclaimed. I was like, oh, wait, hold on. I know those things. That makes me yeah. Really <laughs> yeah, I. it's tough because I always like... I like doing these, but it's so hard not to sort of go overboard with the like Easter egg tie-ins. You know what yeah. I mean? It's like, no, this is its own, its own thing. So we got to like stay, stay on task. Yeah. Uh, but one of the things though, that I do, I felt maybe like a, a little bit of a through line between the two books is, you know, you're talking about having like these trauma and these memories erased, which is obviously like the driving force of reclaims. And in Salvage, um, for people who have read in, for those who haven't, there is a I, I'll call it a villain or a fungi. I, I'm probably vague because I want people to read it if they haven't, but like that also tends to use like the memories of the crewmates that they sort of take over as a way to kind of dig more deeply into them. And it just like had me thinking about, I'm a very nostalgic person and I, I don't, I have my own thoughts on nostalgia, but I'm like, I'm curious, is that something that you look on? Because I know that some people think of nostalgia as really like, bad emotion or a bad thing to use in in art but how do you feel about it is it something where you'd like to remove just like the trauma from your life if you could or do you look back on things and say like it's good to have these memories or not like I guess because it because it's such a major part in both of these books just I'm curious what your thoughts are yeah it's something I think about a lot and this duology I'm not sure if there's gonna be a third book yet I'd love for there to be it's not a sure thing yet um but these are both sort of focusing on the two major traumas of my life, which have been sexual assault and an abusive relationship. And so Reclaimed is really more about the abusive relationship that I was in. And I think about it a lot, right? Like the the impetus for Reclaimed is super toxic. Like I don't like telling this story, but I think it's important to, cause it kind of sets it up. It's um, I was out of a relationship and not the, not the abusive one, which is a different one. I was like, I'm going to join a gym. I'm going to like do the CrossFit thing. Mm -hmm that didn't last very long, but um, there was a woman there who I just could not understand how she existed. She was drop dead gorgeous. She was the strongest woman at the gym by a mile. Mm -hmm. She was a neurosurgeon. She uh, had a a drop dead gorgeous British boyfriend. She had a great little dog. She had, it just was this sort of like, how are you? Like, how, how do you have the energy to like only eat vegetables come to this gym, crush it every day, make us all look like, you know, weaklings. And then also you're a neurosurgeon. And then also you look like this, like, and I, it kicked off this chain of kind of toxic thoughts in my head of like, who would I be if these things had never happened to me? Is Mm -hmm. she the rare person who's like never had a serious like tragedy in her life? And that's Mm -hmm. freed up all this space to like, just absolutely attack life and it's such a dumb thought because absolutely she's probably had to go through very hard things and Mm -hmm. she's just she's probably dealing with her own demons god knows what she does you know in her free time but it was just this thought that i was like i would love to explore this in a book right of like what it what would it mean if you could just have it totally taken away yeah and that was the the opening thought for reclaimed and it evolved along the way obviously right but 
yeah, it was just like, as someone who's had some pretty serious, like bad things happen to them in life that have, you know, it always derails you a little bit. You can't avoid it. Right. And I just was like, so curious, like, what would I look like? Who would I be if these things had never happened to me? And it's kind of a useless thought in a sense, but it is a nostalgia, right? It is the sense of like, if I could go back to Maddie as a child before any of this happened and live a like pristine life, right? Like, what would, yeah. what would that be? What would that mean? So. I, I love like that that concept though, just because I, I know to a, a far less extreme extent what you mean. Like I remember growing up and I, I went to a very small high school and very like close in the community. And there were these kids that I just like, I, it's it's hard to say like, I, I graduated with 48 kids. So it's like, even if you were the most popular kid in our class, you had like, you know, 15 friends. It's not yeah, like- I think our graduating class is like a hundred. So yeah, like very was, low. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was like, it was a small group and everyone knew each other, but there was, there was a few kids who, like they were very well off. They were very rich. They were like, these guys were like, extremely handsome, like not an ounce of fat on their bodies. They all played soccer and like, they were very good at that too. And they got great grades. And I remember just being like, what the hell? Like, why can't I be like those people? And kind of like what you were saying about like seeing this other person. And I mean, I've since like had conversations with them. Like we're, you know, we're all fully functioning adults now. And like, I get along great with them. And I've even told them, I was like, I was so jealous. And I just assumed you didn't have a single problem in the world. And he's like, I mean, I, he's like, I had, you know, anxiety and all sorts of stuff too. It's just, it's different, but, but I know exactly what you mean because even being an adult and having friends who have various, um, you know, who are at various different stages of their life and may seem wonderful on the outside everyone has those demons on the inside that I'm sure they would love to be able to remove if they could and having that option I can absolutely see how that would be like a spark to move forward with something yeah and I think you know I don't want to give away too much of the book but I also one of the challenges of the book is that I didn't really actually want to I think I answer it but I I didn't want to like make the implication that if you could do this that would be good or that you're like I don't, I don't like the idea that like, oh, but you're made up of your traumas, right? Like Mm -hmm. that's also BS. So I wanted to sort of like really finesse the answer to be like, you just can't, right? Like Mm -hmm. you really just can't remove these things. You can do it. You can try everything, but at the end of the day, they are part of you, right? Like it's almost sort of like the want is immaterial because Mm -hmm. you can't, right? So how do you, then how do you move forward? Yeah. So, and then on top of using that trauma to be a driving force, there's also something that, and this is a little bit probably more in, in the first book as opposed to reclaimed in the, like I said, in the duology, I need to stop putting them like together. Cause you literally just said that and you're absolutely right. Like they're not one's not a sequel to the other, but the concept of like horror and thrillers and suspense in space and the like extreme isolation. Like I don't, I don't think I need to ask you like what's so scary about big space like I think we all know what it is like you can't freaking escape there's nowhere to go but how you know is that something that you like to me being in space trapped somewhere like whether it's like watching alien or you know like a classic like movie or reading a book like that to me that's like exactly what I feel like anxiety feels like but is that something that's kind of like cathartic for you to write about or is it or do you feel yourself getting that like almost like panic attack like I honestly like reading both books like my heart was racing the whole time not just because of the scary shit going on but because I'm like and they're in space and they can't go anywhere like is that something that's going through your mind while you're writing it too 
I mean, it's kind of a, it's kind of great, right? Because you have a built-in tension that you never, mm-hmm. like, you almost don't have to remind people, right? Because you're like, no, they're in, they're in space. Like, that's it. They can, they really can't go anywhere unless they find a shuttle or a, you know, escape pod or something. Um, I am terrified of space. You could not pay me money to do it. I would not go. A never, 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 which is probably ironic for someone who enjoys sci-fi and likes writing it. But to me, that would be just, it would always be in the back of my head. I would never stop thinking about the fact that like, if anything goes wrong here, we're, it's over, that's it, you're done, right? Um, and so for me, it, it's great because as a, you know, as a horror writer, it's like, you're always trying to find ways to ratchet up the tension. And it's so nice to just have that there where you're like, that's always in the back of your mind. That's always a threat that never goes away, right? And it also helps because when you're in a high technology society, the hardest thing, even writing modern books is like getting people away from cell phones and technology and ways to call for help. Like you have to like come up with ways essentially to remove that because otherwise the problem is solved in 10 minutes. So yeah, it's like, you know, you have to sort of, there's always some kind of, you know, tr- like tragedy on top of everything else that happens to take away communication. But um, yeah, it's nice to, to use that. Sorry, that's always one of my favorite things when when you'll like I'll see a um an interview with like a horror director and their their movie will be set in like 1993 and the the interviewer will be like so what is it about that time period that made you want to and they're like expecting no cell phones to do exactly they're just like well there was no cell phones so that like the problem could be solved instantaneously yeah <laughs> um but so speaking of writing horror um you have this innate ability to write the most I don't want to call them graphic but like visceral scenes that are just like I have stopped eating like snacks or anything when I'm reading your book. <laughs> like I get like 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 oh my god what's happening in fact I will tell you having nothing to do with these books I think they're I think it was an asylum like which is you know a middle grade YA horror it's not that like you're in fully grown adult and there's something where one of the main characters basically like turns their legs around or like their legs bend backwards at like the end of one of the books and I remember being like Jesus like it just like stayed with me and I've also heard you say that like growing up you were kind of like a like a big scaredy cat or maybe you still are when it comes to like reading this type of stuff so how do you go about like what's the process feel like writing those like visceral scenes like that I don't, yeah, I am a scaredy cat still to this day. I'm not a risk taker in any sense. Um, if I see a dark corridor or a dark alley, I won't go. I won't, yeah. I won't do it. I'm brave in other senses, but not in that sense. And I actually think that makes it easy, right? You can kind of tap into the thing. I actually like gravitate towards the things that I'm most afraid of to write mm-hmm. about. And I think that makes sense. I think that's like a very common thing people do because you're like, I don't know, you get to sort of experience it and explore it in a safe way right because you're in control of it at all times if it gets to be too much you can like pull back um and it's funny because like i don't do well with gore (laughs) at all uh but i can watch the like most intense surgery shows pimple popper like all that stuff but like body horror in a movie i can't i know bad there's something and you're like it's fake but there's something about it that just grosses me out so much. But when I'm writing it, I don't know, I feel like I'm in control of it. And Mm. so I can take it to the level where I am grossed out, but still okay. (laughs) I can still like get through it. Um, But yeah, I mean, I tend to pick all that stuff. Like in one of the asylum books, someone gets like all their teeth pulled out and I have a huge teeth Mm. thing. Like I, it just, I don't even like thinking about bones in general. Um, So yeah, no, I think it's, I don't really know how to explain it. It's probably 
a neurosis, right? <laughs> like there's something wrong with me that you're like, here's all this stuff I find horrible and I'm just going to just run towards it. Um, but I will say, I mean, there's definitely days where you're like, I don't want to do this right now. Like mm-hmm. it was really hard to write and finish horror books during the pandemic. Like it was just not a place I wanted to be in my head, you know? Um, but I do think that horror, horror is so cathartic for so many people that you just kind of have to keep that in the back of your mind. Like it, we're going to get to the end of it. Right. And that feeling of like relief and release is like what we're ultimately, you know, working towards. Yeah. And, and I think that extreme isolation that we all just went through for 16 months and in many cases are still, you know, maybe should still be going through it or are still going through it. Like, I, I think you're right. I, I, for so long, I feel like at the beginning of the pandemic, we, like Jill and I, my co-host would joke on our podcast about like, which one of us that week was steering into the pandemic type books and which one of us was just avoiding it entirely. And right. at the same time, I, I did find myself turning to horror frequently as it's like, an escape in the sense that I know most of the time that it's going to end. And like, I think that what, I think exactly what you're saying about how horror books have that release at the end. Like for so long for all of us, it was like, is this ever going to end? And so having books that even if they do like scare the hell out of us, I I do think it is, there is like a a catharsis of of being like, all right, well, it's like 300 pages of creepy, but then it's going to be, over after that, I do see it. Was that the thing? Like, were you when you didn't want to write about that type of stuff? Were you still reading those types of books, or was it steering away from that for you too? Um, you know, when I'm in the middle of re- writing horror, I actually don't tend to read any of it or like kind of consume it at all because mm-hmm. I just get paranoid about like influences kind of make you know like inadvertently. I think when you are a creator, you can't help it. You are going to pull inspiration from things mm-hmm. and that's okay as long as it's clear that it's like an homage or you're open about it but yeah I tend to it puts me in such a, a dark head place that I tend to just read really happy fluffy stuff like I just like my romance novel consumption goes up by 200 percent right yeah. I'm just like anything anything kind of fun and and just you know easy breezy is what it is what it becomes or just different right it just has to be like very different Um, because when you're just there, like for, you know, I tend to write in really intense, like blocks where it's like, I just do nothing else for kind of like three weeks. Right. And I just get it done. But that means that you're really steeped in it and you're really immersed in it. And especially when it's a book like this, where you're sort of exercising real trauma that's happened to you, it just puts you in this place where you're like, okay, when I, when I hit, you know, when I close the window, I want to just be somewhere else Mm -hmm. and you know, kind of recharge so that I can attack it again the next day. For, for stories like, like these two that involve basically creating an entire universe, you know, for you, what, you know, what aspect of this came first? Was it kind of thinking about those, like, like you said, like kind of maybe those aspects of trauma that you wanted to dive into and then peel layers back up, or was it a type of a, a futuristic like sci-fi universe that you would be able to create like is it setting first or is it the plot and characters for you I think it's always character first Mm -hmm. um and this one's unique too right because I kind of already knew I had the setting um and there is a brief reference to that the cult that's featured in this one in the first book and it was just something that after I finished salvage and I was like 
his salvage is loosely based on like beauty and the beast is kind of the backbone of that and i was like mm-hmm. okay i know i want to use this character and i know i want to do something that's kind of like a sci-fi beauty and the beast but not like you know not one-to-one necessarily and then with reclaimed i was like well let's keep the fairy tale backbone this one's more of like a bluebeard kind of situation mm-hmm. and um for me it was like okay i love this idea of this cult that we had in the in the first book what if we like that someone who's fresh out of that is perfect to sort of get wrapped up in a bluebeard fairy tale right mm-hmm. where they're very vulnerable they're reacclimating to the world as it stands um and so yeah for me it was like character and story first mm-hmm. and then building a setting around it that to me made sense and i want i like i wanted this to be familiar like it's only 200 ish years in the in the future yeah. Um, which is a lot, but not, not, not the oh, same. Yeah. And I knew that I wanted it to be kind of like soft-ish. So I, I hate that like hard, soft distinction. It tends yeah. to just mean, did a man write it or did a woman write it? Which is <laughs> absolute nonsense. But, uh-huh. um, you know, I want it to be something that you can like jump into and I don't have to over-explain all the technology. I don't have to over-explain that because to yeah. me, that's not what this book or these books in general are about. Like it's cool. It's, it's you know, it's immersive and it's set dressing. But to mm-hmm. me, with any book, it's always the character, the main character comes first. And yeah. then the sort of story starts to build around that character, what I need them to do, what where I want them to end up. And then the setting also starts to like become apparent to me as that's happening. I want to take a quick break to talk about today's sponsor, which is a company that is near and dear to my heart and its headspace. Um, life can be stressful, even under normal circumstances. And of course, over the past year and a half to going on two years now, none of us have been living with normal circumstances. Um, you know, you need a way to relieve your stress that goes beyond just quick fixes, and that's headspace. Headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy to use app. Um, Headspace is the only one of the meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. So whatever the situation, Headspace really can help you feel better. Whether you're overwhelmed, Headspace has these three minute SOS meditations for you, which I am happy to admit that I use all of the time. I am a person who struggles with anxiety and depression and having headspace in my life and letting me be uh, centered and focused for a few minutes a day. Um, It really kind of helps keep me grounded and bring me back and kind of into my own body, if that understands, if that makes any sense. I'm also a person who struggles with falling asleep and staying asleep and Headspace has wind down sessions for people to, and, and I'm one of the people that's going by. Uh, for parents, Headspace even has a morning meditation that you can do with your kids, which is amazing. Headspace's approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. Um, they are backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, as well as 600,000 five-star reviews and 60 million downloads. Uh, all I will say is that if you are somebody who, like me, has been struggling with you know, feeling like you have the weight of the world on your shoulders and your chest, uh, try this out. Try their three-minute SOS uh, meditations. Try the wind-down sessions at night. See if it helps you. I can almost guarantee it's going to, and then you are going to be hooked. You deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. All you have to do is go to Headspace, 
headspace.com slash PBN. That's headspace.com slash PBN for a free one month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best offer that they are providing right now. So head to headspace.com slash PBN today. So is it easier, like, do you have a preference between kind of creating your own sand sandbox like that to, to build out your own universe? Because you've also written books like in the, the World of Warcraft world, which is, you know, <laughs> too many worlds. Uh, but like that it's, you know, it's existing IP and obviously you can very much play in that space, but the, the space is already created for you. Like, do you have a preference between the two of like just anything you can conjure up, you can put into your world versus you know, you can still have the freedom to do what you want to do, but within a confined structure. I find them both satisfying in totally different ways. Um, I think finding where you and your style fits into someone else's or a many people's already created world is mm -hmm. fun and fascinating and kind of like a cool experiment. I will say it comes with uh, a lot of baggage <laughs> and uh does it always work out the way you hope it would to be, to be honest, uh, yeah, to be yeah. perfectly frank. And I think that like, I think I, I caution authors sometimes that are eager to get into that space that like you to kind of don't know what you're signing up for. You think, you know what you're signing up for. Mm -hmm. um, and it is a lot of fun. I mean, I have a blast because I come from a fan fiction background. That's where I started and I'm not shy about talking about that. Right. Yeah. So I cut my teeth on like Star Wars fan fiction when I was a teenager. And I, so for me, it's a dream, right? Because you get to be like, oh, this is already set up. And now I just get to come in and like kind of do the fun stuff. Like all the, all the hard work's kind of done for you. Yeah. Um, but I will say there's something you're also it's always then a collaborative process right because you are beholden to the people who own that IP. They have more or less total 100% say on anything you do. Yeah. And while I find collaboration really fun and really rewarding, it does become difficult when you're like, I see this totally differently. I see mm -hmm. this vision totally differently, but it's not mine at the end of the day. So yeah. I think I'll always prefer my my own work because I just get final say. I mean, I yeah. know that sounds like egotistical, but there's something about being like, no, I see where I see this vision. I, I feel really strongly about like, uh, I don't really like I take criticism right and I work with my editors but I really I really disagree with the sense of like fans know best I think that's absolutely incorrect yeah. in every yeah. sense <laughs> like and I think as a creator it's your job to give people what they don't know they want mm -hmm. not what they say they want so uh when you're in control of it you actually are doing that you get to really drive it and say yeah I get it that you would love that this would wrap up in a nice yeah. whatever package or you would love these characters to get together but like that's not what we're doing here um and so, yeah, I think I'll always prefer that sort of like me getting to have the final say as opposed to, you know, a, a marketing person. Yeah. Well, and admittedly, like, and, and this uh, not <laughs> to put words into your mouth at all, but like, I have to imagine, you know, when someone, when you write a book that's your own, you know, intellectual property that came out of your own brain, like I'm picking up that book with 100% certainty. I'm like, oh, I'm a Madeline Rue fan. I'm picking up this book because they wrote this. Whereas... World of Warcraft, Star Wars, Star Trek, insert anything that the Dungeons and Dragons, Dungeons, which I'm Dungeons, doing now as well. <laughs> yeah, and which 
with like while all of the fan bases from those can be extremely passionate and good in some ways there's also extremely toxic fandom in in those and i know you've dealt with that and i'm not asking you to talk about it but like i have to imagine i mean you know, i don't care i'll talk yeah about it, i but... kind of figured you did but just like knowing the fact that the people who come to your books that are coming to your books that is your your ip like from scratch as opposed to like someone who might pick it up who's like oh i love this particular storyline and then they read it and they're like that woman doesn't know what they're talking about like i have to yeah it's a little irritating i think i think this is going to sound strange but i think it it makes sense the more you kind of chew it over is that if i make a mistake in a book i write that's my mistake and i own it Mm -hmm. and i'm okay with that if someone finds a plot hole or a mistake or a continuity error in one of my books that's 100% me. I have no problem taking responsibility for that because that was on me or yeah. that was on our team, right? And we didn't catch it. And I I have no problem like that. Or if someone doesn't like that book, it tends to be like, I didn't like this book, the end, right? Like it doesn't tend <laughs> yeah. to create like a blood vendetta. It doesn't tend to like make it to the spookiest corners of the internet. You know what yeah. I mean? It's like, it's really just more about the work itself. And mm-hmm. I like that. I mean, you still get weird reviews. It's like, well, clearly she thinks this. And you're like, that was the villain. I don't know why you would, they're bad. Anyway, yeah. but when it's an IP thing, it's like, I don't have the Bible of facts about this IP. Right. If they miss a, if they miss something, if their continuity team misses something, yeah. that's not my fault, right. but you are blamed or right. Or if the plot's bad, or if the choices they don't like, it's like, I didn't make these choices. Mm-hmm. So I don't like being responsible for that feedback yeah. because I didn't have any power over it. Right. It's like, if you want to say like, I didn't like the style, I didn't like the word choice a hundred percent that's on me. Right. Mm-hmm. Like if you don't like the way I write, that's just a fact. But if it's this sort of like other stuff, right. That you're not in control of, it's a hard pill to swallow. And I mean, it's part of the job, right. It's you, I knew that was coming. I didn't know a lot of other stuff was coming, but like, (laughs) like, but that you're like, okay, this is going to happen. Right. If I get a fact wrong about this world, yeah, they're going to know, they're going to think I'm the dumbest person ever. They're going to blame it on me. Right. But that is still frustrating. That's still Mm. hard to deal with because you're like, I didn't decide this, you know, this is someone else's outline that you're just executing. So yeah, um, yeah, it's always going to be, it's always easier to take criticism that you're actually responsible for. I know that sounds weird. Like it should be easier to let it wash off your back when it's, you didn't have control over it, but somehow it's harder because you're like, it's not me. (laughs) I I don't know what to tell you, man. I didn't, I didn't make that decision. Yeah. When it's you fucking up, yeah. I can I can take accountability for that and be like, yeah, I missed that or I misspelled that or yeah. we didn't catch that, you know. So. Well, I mean, it's, I'm sure it's still irritating just to like get those messages and like there's no point in responding by being like, that's actually not my thing because then they're going to be like, yeah, it is. there's just there's no winning on the internet. And when people, well, and it's, you um, know, it's hard too because it's a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking, right? And it's like, if I wrote, it's like, well, here's the thing. Sephiroth XXVII666, you would also have to write from an outline. So <laughs> take your anime avatar and uh-huh. kindly go away. Like yeah. you would you would have to you would have to do it too. It's yeah. not like 
I came on board and they're like, oh, she has to have an outline. It's like literally every IP person writing knows this. And I went on approximately 50 Warcraft podcasts to explain this to people, but somehow they still don't understand. Somehow they missed it. Yeah. Yeah. Somehow they missed the 900 times. I was like, yeah, you don't really get to like, just jump into the sandbox and take it away. Right. Right. So, so yeah. So something like, you know, salvage reclaimed where it's my sandbox, it's my, problem it's my fault mm-hmm. I prefer that <laughs> I prefer to make mistakes on my own terms yeah not someone else's that makes sense I have an extremely completely left term but very important question for you so as a person who I again we have talked about is self-proclaimed scaredy cat yeah what is scarier reading a horror novel watching a horror movie or playing a horror video game oh video game 100 percent yeah, that is the correct answer, but I would love for you to expand them on why, and then I will share my sense as well. Uh, I think it's because, I don't know, there's something about the unpredictability of it. I feel like horror movies, even if they're very scary, they tend to be pretty predictable. So the music's going to cue you in, you know, you kind of get the tropes after a while. You kind of can predict when you're like, oh, I'm probably going to look away now. Yeah. Where with a video game, it's like, that there's a lot less of that there's a lot less signaling that something's about to happen Mm -hmm. um i think there's something about you being in control that suddenly makes it a lot scarier and i don't know why i mean it's like it's still visual right it's still a visual Mm -hmm. medium um but yeah no i i think 100 percent because it's it's just not as you don't i I don't play a lot of them i've played a few but like I think they just are really honestly very creative in a lot of ways. And so it's like, you don't get those little hints. You don't get those signals all the time. The jump scares are a lot more intense for some reason when yeah. it's like you in control of your character. So yeah, no, a hundred percent. I, I honestly, I watch a lot. I watch like let's plays of them because mm-hmm. I want, I'm compelled by the story, but yes. um yeah, no, I don't tend to play a lot of them. I can play ones that are sort of like, you know, Edith Finch, like things that are a little more like spooky or atmospheric, not mm-hmm. outright, you know, trying to scare you to death. So, yeah, it's so funny you say that because I completely, first off, I 100% agree with you, not only the answer, and but also the reasoning, which is so weird because I feel like in every other instance in life, like I would prefer to be in charge of my own fate and like everything in life, no matter what it is, like if I'm going on a car ride with friends, I want to be the one driving, you know, and just all these like little things. Yes. When it comes to horror, yeah, like from a, if it's a novel, I can, you know, either like skip past or like skip a paragraph, whatever it is. If it's a horror movie, I can close my eyes. But exactly what you said, like if it's a horror game, my friend and I were like, several years ago at this point, we we're playing that. Um, it was Until Dawn. I don't know. If oh, you know yeah. Yeah. I, play, I have had, play, I played that one for sure. Yeah. And, and it was definitely, it was one of the first games that I'd ever played like that where it was like so. I think they have like 40 endings or whatever it could be. And yeah. it's, you know, your choices lead you to the end and you don't know if you're doing it right or wrong throughout the whole thing. And yeah, I just remember being like absolutely horrified the whole time being like, Jesus Christ, what's about to happen on this corner? And also, did I do something right or wrong? Yeah, well, for whatever reason, it's, yeah. I Maybe it's uh, because it puts some of the impetus on you where like when you're watching a movie, you have mm-hmm. no control over what the characters are going to do. Yeah. Where in a video game, like you're kind of partially responsible. I think the other thing too, is that if you fail, you're going to have to do it again, <laughs> yeah. right? So if you die and then you have to like checkpoint, you're like, great, now I know this is coming and my mm-hmm. palms are 
drenched and yeah. I'm like, oh, like you're anticipating it. Right. Because like, yeah. not only have you already failed at it, you know, it's scary. And now you have to keep doing it do until it you do it right. And that's, I think that adds a layer of stress that is just not present. Cause then it would be like, you're, if it's awful, you like watch it once you're like, well, I'm never thinking uh-huh. about that again. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think like for me, like I'm obsessed with Ari Aster's work. Like mm-hmm. I aspire to ever do anything that touches Hereditary or Midsommar. Mm-hmm. Like those are two yeah. of my favorite movies and those are, and they're like, I, I mean, they're scary, but they're not, it's like, it's, it, they're not nearly the level of, you know, intensity and gore or as mm-hmm. like, you know, more of a slasher movie. And to me, it, what works in those in those stories and what I always try to do in my books is like, it's just more unsettling. It just, it's, there's just something wrong. There's just something off, you know? Yeah. I, the one that I always think of is um, I'm trying to think of the director, the witch. Um, Oh yeah. I love the witch. Yeah. That's the same thing where it's just like, uh, I, I, whatever reason exactly. We said it's so unsettling and it's like the very simple, like musical direction where it's just like, like a, like a, Viol- like a single note on like a violin playing the whole time and that like there's also something about that particular setting for me like a yeah. 1800s farm type of a, like all like the crops it's the isolation it's yeah the same, exactly it's yeah. the same thing yeah oh man yeah that's so as a person who I've heard it became an accidental horror writer because it kind of <laughs> just started like this like did you read these types of books when you were a kid since you've saying you've always been a scaredy cat <laughs> you know I I had recovered memory after I've like said that a bunch of times on podcasts I'm like people must think I like don't read horror but honestly as a kid I was obsessed with Anne Rice <laughs> I mm-hmm. read everything she did I read all the goosebumps mm-hmm. I read you know like I watched all those shows um I was into like I, I was obsessed with Bram Stoker's Dracula from too young of an, of an age yeah. frankly and and the book Dracula I still I reread that like at least once a year mm-hmm. um so yeah no I was reading it I just sort of fell off of it I feel mm-hmm. like at a certain point but it's so clear to me now when I think back to like those formative books at that age and then I look at my catalog I'm like oh I can draw direct lines from my top 10 books of mm-hmm. ages 8 to 14 right yeah. like I feel like that's when you're developing your your reading taste in a lot of ways and mm-hmm. and sort of your your like the underbelly of your psyche in a lot of ways and like though I can see like I could I could take one of those books and put one of mine next to it for like every single one and be like there's clearly something going on here so (laughs) um I actually I got the chance to meet R.L. Stein. we were at um I was supposed to be on a panel with him and he couldn't make it it's like what are the I'm in a I'm in a collection with him that's my that's my the closest yeah. I've gotten but I man I want to meet him so bad well he so we we were at BookCon um with our company and I was doing author interviews the whole time I was there but I wasn't interviewing him our, our CEO was doing like a we were doing a video shoot with him and so we were sitting there waiting for it to set up and he's of course he's he's Bob Stein he's like black button up and his black and he's just like he's like slunched over in a chair and I went up to him and I was like Mr. Stein I just want to tell you like you basically wrote my childhood I was like yep. but and I was joking with him I was like but I need to I need to tell you like I read your book so often that I'd actually w- would read them in class like I would have the like math book in front <laughs> of his book you know I'd be reading whichever one it was the beast for the east or whatever and I told him I was like you're the reason I'm bad at math and he looks at me just complete deadpan and anyone who's ever heard him speak knows he's like just very funny but very deadpan 
And he looks at me, he's like, so you were failing math? I was like, yeah. He's like, but you work for a book company now? I was like, well, yeah. And he just goes, you're welcome. And then he walks away. And I was like, I just got dunked on by R.L. Stein so hard. It was so funny. Oh, man. It was just like, okay, well, that was everything I could possibly hope for. So isn't he right, though? Because I did the same thing. I I think I met, squeaked out a C in most, most of my math classes mm-hmm. through college and high school. But like, yeah, but what I was doing was reading books and writing fan yeah. fiction of those books. So yeah, yeah. thanks. I mean, yeah. Exactly, 100%. It's crazy when you, you know, it's a whole other conversation, but it's hey, it worked. You, it worked out. So yeah, crazy when you give kids books they want to read that they'll actually keep reading them. Right. So shocking. Um, so towards the end of our podcast, we like to ask nine lighthearted questions. Um, nothing too serious. We call them the nerd nine because I like alliteration. Uh, so the first one is what is the last book you finished reading? Oh, crap. Or are are currently reading. I'll accept that that's easier for you. Okay. Um, Well, I actually have been working on a a little young adult mystery. And so I I bought a giant Agatha Christie compendium and I've been working my way through that because I'm obsessed with with her work and her as a person. She's fascinating. Um, There is a book. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's by um, Marie Benedict uh, called some of the mystery somewhere in this room, um, the mystery of Miss Christie. And it's historical i'm trying to to find it yeah marie benedict's been on our podcast a bunch but um i think it's called the mystery of mrs christie it's basically all about those 11 days where she disappeared it's very cool and it's it's really it's it's historical fiction but all of the facts that she could put in it is in it because obviously she couldn't put any facts about 11 days yeah it's really really good um do you have a favorite place to read I tend to just like um, either lie down on the couch with my dogs or just before bed. I'm a before bed reader, which I know mm. is a bad habit, but it's just where it tends to happen the most. So, yeah. Well, it's only a bad habit if you're doing what I all like, what I also do, which is like read creepy books or like things that are going <laughs> to absolutely jack up my, my dreams if I happen to have them. So I understand. <laughs> um, you might have mentioned this before, but what is the book that kind of made you fall in love with reading when you were a kid? Uh, I, oh God, I'm going to forget her name again. And I'm such a, I'm such a bad person for this. I'm going to look it up. Uh, (laughs) I've been on this quest. I'm just going to say it because, uh, Cheryl Jordan is the author. She's a New Zealand author, Kiwi. Mm -hmm. It's called Winter of Fire. Uh, it's a young adult fantasy. For some reason, nobody knows about this book. I think it's absolutely brilliant. And I like forgot about it. I read it probably a hundred times when I was a teenager, Mm -hmm. forgot about it remembered it like two years ago or last year and I was on Twitter I was like can someone help me figure out what this book is I remember what the cover looks like and I remember the premise I don't remember the title or the author and god bless Twitter for this only they helped me find (laughs) help me find it and she's still alive she does I don't think she really publishes anymore but I have a few like New Zealand author friends and I'm like can you find this woman I need you to find her and tell her like, she's not on social media. I cannot find her at this point. I might like try to go through the publisher and be like, does anyone just have an email address? Because I'm not stalking her. I promise. I just want to inform her that like this book changed my life. You know, I read it so many times. And when I reread it last summer and now I just read it all the time, but um, I was like, this is spooky. Like the style, the way she constructs sentences, the type of stuff that's in that book. I'm like, you, I mean, this is, it's like, 
this is clearly the most formative book from that era of my life that sort of led to the type mm -hmm. of writing I like to do. So yeah, Winter Fire by Cheryl Jordan. It's super underrated. It's fantastic. I am writing that down as I'm typing that into my computer as we speak. You'll so read it in an afternoon. I mean, it's yeah. just like, it goes down quick and it's yeah. fascinating. And I'm like, I wanted uh, so many more books in this universe. I don't know what, we only got one. Like, mm -hmm. uh, it's brilliant. Uh, that's amazing. Um, what is one place you'd like to travel that you have not yet visited? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I would love to go to France. I've never been to France, which is weird because I'm Swiss. Um, <laughs> I've been to Switzerland and Italy, but not yeah. France. Um, I'd love to go to France. I'd really love to go to Japan. Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of, of my international trips, I think that might be next. So, yeah. uh, Do you have a favorite holiday to celebrate? Halloween. I felt like a given, had to ask though. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the horror author loves Halloween. They're crazy, right? Not a cliche at all. Yeah, I actually speak, I told you before we started recording, we have a mutual friend, Mallory O'Meara, who comes on this podcast all the time. And I remember asking her for her first book that, and she just like, for a full 10 seconds, stared at me via Zoom. She's like, what do you think the answer is? And I was like, fair, <laughs> had to ask. Um, coffee or tea? Oh, ooh, that's tough. I really I eat both. I really mm -hmm. drink both evenly, I think. Uh, I know the answer because I can see one right now, but I'm going to ask anyway, cats or dogs? Dogs. I'm a dog person. I would like 17 more, but two mm -hmm. will have to suffice for now. Do you have a favorite food? Uh, pizza. And then if you could have dinner with one person alive or dead, who would you pick? Well, I probably should say Cheryl Jordan just to like manifest this, Yeah. but um, Jane Austen. I am... Um, obsessed with her I'll always be obsessed with her I think she would also just be a great a great conversationalist so yeah uh last question for you what do you hope readers take away from reading Reclaimed um honestly I hope it's pretty uh, I don't think it has an uplifting ending <laughs> I think it has kind of an ambiguous ending which yeah. I always love to do but I hope they take away that like uh you know the trauma that you experience and that you live with it doesn't make you who you are it's not it doesn't define you mm -hmm. I think you can define it right I think you can define what it means to you what it means in your life and what it means or doesn't mean you know mm -hmm. going forward it doesn't have to it doesn't have to inform your your future right you can sort of you can change it to be mm -hmm. what you need it to be that is absolutely perfect. Madeline, I told you before we started recording, I have um, been reading your books for several, several years, and I was hoping at some point to have you on the podcast. So thank you so much for joining me today. This was a blast. My pleasure. This was a lot of fun. Um, I love doing podcasts. So, you know, <laughs> anytime, anytime. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald and presented by Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? 
Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.